Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and we have a very special guest for you today. We are going to be talking to the last man living who knew the great writer C.S. Lewis well, his stepson, Douglas Gresham. That's coming right up. Stay with us. And welcome back. As I mentioned at the top of the show here, we have a special guest for you today. I've been trying to get an interview with this man for a very, very long time because he has a fascinating book published in 1988, the year I was born, called Lenten Lands. And he describes how he grew up with C.S. Lewis and his mother, Joy Davidman. Those who know anything about C.S. Lewis's life will know that he married Joy Davidman. She became uh, Joy Lewis. She became Mrs. Lewis. There's actually an interesting historical novel that came out a couple of years ago that my wife really enjoyed called Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And Douglas just really has incredible insights into what it was like to to live with C.S. Lewis. He has fascinating stories about the last years of C.S. Lewis's life. He's lived all over the world, in America, in the United Kingdom. He also lived in Tanzania, uh, not Tanzania, pardon me, um, in Tasmania for years, and he also lived in Ireland for a while where he ran a pro-life ministry. He sees abortion for the heinous crime against preborn children that it actually is. And so Douglas Gresham, just to give you a little bit of background, he's, uh, he was born on November 10, 1945. He's an American-British stage and voiceover actor, biographer. His biography, of course, was of his stepson, uh, Jack Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, he was also the son of William Gresham, who was the author of Nightmare Alley, the classic of American noir literature. So his father, his mother, and his stepfather were all very famous, very well-known writers. And his life after uh, both his mother and C.S. Lewis passed away is, is equally fascinating. So without further introduction from me, please enjoy this very interesting conversation uh, with Douglas Gresham, the stepson of C.S. Lewis. Earliest memories um, of, of of living at, at the kilns, you mean, or or before that? Well, I suppose the most the most difficult memories that I have are the, the memories of having to deal with my my brother, who was later on um, diagnosed as being a dangerous paranoid schizophrenic. When I was a small child, uh, he was always continually um, trying to get rid of me, and this went on until our teen years. So the, the earliest memories I have are basically of running like crazy or defending myself against my, my rather insane brother. One of the things that it, it, it's very, very interesting is, is the fact that um, your father, although uh, you're known now more, especially with your work as a producer and your work on, on Focus on the Family's Narnia Productions, um, for your relation to C.S. Lewis, uh, your father, William Lindsay Gresham, was actually a very famous author in his own right. What was it like to grow up with two very intellectual parents <laughs> who, 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 were, who were both famous in their own right as writers? Yes, I think, I think it's, it's, well, it's difficult to describe because I really don't know any other way of growing up, if you know what I mean. Um, my, dad was, my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, he came back from the Spanish Civil War. Uh, having volunteered to go over there and work and fight there, uh, with bad cases of alcoholism, for one. Uh, he came back also with um, PTSD in, in large quantities and uh, tuberculosis. So when I was born, he was recovering from all of those things to some extent. And he was, he was a very heavy smoker as well, which of course eventually killed him. But I loved him dearly. I mean, he could be very... Um, very not angry, but he would he would roar and rage sometimes in the house. He would shout and cry and shout, and, and and it was very frightening for a small boy. But basically, I loved him dearly. And uh, when the, the whole sort of fiasco happened of uh, he and and um, Renee, my mother's first cousin, who was looking after us and looking after the house while she was away in England trying to get publishers for Smoke on the Mountain and stuff like that, um, when he fell in love with her and they decided to marry. The split up 
was not as desperate to me. It wasn't, I wasn't terribly upset about that. I liked Renee. Uh, she looked after us while, while Dad was uh, writing and stuff, and while Mother was away. So I grew to like Renee very much. And, of course, her two children, whom, whom Dad and, and uh, my mother were sort of shielding from another um, retired soldier who, again, had a very bad case of PTSD. And in any case, so it was, it was different. It was just, it's a, I, I look, I had a very strange childhood, and I don't think there's any, any denying of that. Um, eventually, mother and, and my father got divorced. Uh, he, he, dad went off with Renee down to Florida somewhere, where they were, they lived until he died, and, and she lived until she eventually died there too. And I, I went to see her frequently, as frequently as I could when I was in America much later. And we were very good friends, and my wife got to know her as well. And um, so anyhow, the, the whole thing was just, it was just a strange upbringing, I guess, in that case, in that sense. But um, yeah, so my mother and, and, uh, and my brother and myself set out to get on a ship and go across to England. And then, of course, things changed radically because no one ever shouted at me except at school, of course. I was rather bullied at school for being American and having an American accent, which I dealt with by hitting back very hard on one occasion when I finally had had enough, but I was only eight years old. And that sort of put an end to it. Yeah, yeah, that'll do <laughs> okay. it. I, I, well, I also decided that I was going to try and stop any bullies from bullying anybody else who was younger than me after that. And I did that pretty pretty much right through my school career and various careers, various uh, schools. But it was, it's, it's very difficult to describe, I mean, I did it as best I could in Lent and Lands, but it was, it's very difficult to describe what it was like. Because I don't think many people have ever been through that, this kind of upbringing that I had. Um, we, I still had my, my dangerous brother to deal with, um, and mostly was able to fend him off or, or run away from him. But I've only, I'm only talking about him now because he's dead, but I would never have said anything to harm him while he was alive or even to, to upset him. Right. Uh, because oddly enough, I still loved him as a brother. In fact, I, I wept when he died. But, um, yeah, weird, I had a very weird childhood. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah, well, if, if if you talk about a brother suffering from what he suffered from, and then uh, it, two, your two parents were writers, and then, of course, there was, there was C.S. Lewis. And it's very interesting. Um, I actually, so I've been familiar with your work personally, but I wasn't aware of this novel that had recently come out until my wife read it, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Yes, it's a good book. One of the things I like about it, sorry, one of the things I like about that book is that it doesn't beat around the bush. It doesn't look for all kinds of side issues and so forth that most biographies do. It just presents a woman in a difficult situation and how she coped with it. And I think it's, it's pretty darned accurate, quite frankly, and I think it's a good book. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, is how effectively you thought that it captured um, your mother's story. I think it does, it does very well. Uh, it's not a huge toe. I mean, it doesn't go back to her childhood and so forth, or I think the old mention might, might crop up. But it does point out that she wasn't the sort of woman that, that, that a lot of people have thought she was, which was a, a gold digger in one case, and other people who thought she was this, that, and the other thing. She was just a woman who was immensely powerful mentally. She had a huge brain, a huge abilities uh, in that area, and was a very good writer with it, and a good poet as well. And um, there, weren't, there wasn't much in the world that my mother didn't know about. And she had never met anyone on the same level as herself until she met Jack. And, of course, the two of them it sort of clicked together, obviously. It was just it was inevitable, I think. How did she end up connecting with, with C.S. Lewis at first? Because to back up a little bit, your mother, your mother was not initially a Christian, correct? I don't think anybody's initially a Christian. One has to become one. But, no, my mother started off as a communist, to some extent, having been brought up in a Jewish family. My parents were Jewish. She didn't really cotton onto that too well, but she, she took on communism for a while until she suddenly realized that it was complete nonsense. And then she started to look around to say, well, if, if all of this is, turns out to be nonsense, where can I find truth? Mm-hmm. And a friend of hers, uh, whose name at the moment escapes me, sent her a copy of Jack's Mere Christianity book, I think it was. And she read it, and she wrote back to this guy and said, look, you know, I have a few questions. And he said, well, don't ask me. Write to Lewis himself. He always answers his mail. And it was that that set off the whole chain of events. Mother wrote to Jack, and Jack wrote back, and, and they suddenly 
sort of corresponded enough to suddenly realize that they both had these enormously powerful minds. And they both were way up there, sort of on a, on a mountaintop above everybody else. And, of course, the pen friendship developed. And then much later, when uh, she had written Smoke on the Mountain, and went over not only to try and find you know, a publisher for it in, in England, but she also did want to meet this man that she'd been corresponding with it, with for quite some time. And they did meet, and, and they instantly, I think, found themselves face-to-face with someone of their own kind. And there aren't too many of those in the world. When did you first become aware of your mother's relationship with C.S. Lewis in terms of their intellectual relationship writing back and forth? Oh, I was aware of that when I was a little boy in New York, upstate New York is where we lived. Um, it was very, very, very soon. She would talk about this guy, Jack, and sometimes she would tell a story she invented around him just for fun. Um, but yeah, it was, it was quite evident to me that this, she'd made a good friend, and that was all it was. And of course, many people think that she set out to, to trap C.S. Lewis. Well, getting cancer and dying is not a very good way of doing that, so that's absolute nonsense too. But um, what really happened there was, was quite simple. Jack and, and my mother came together and found each other as being the only person each of them had ever met in their own lives who was on their equal level. And I've never met anyone since on that kind of level, to be honest. I've met some very intelligent, very bright, and very wonderful people, but nobody who who, who stood up to, to Jack and my mother. So they grew closer and closer as time went by, and when Jack found that she was in difficulties financially, he would help. But people mistake that as being specifically for my mother, because Jack helped anybody who was in financial difficulties. I was once delivering a lecture in somewhere in America, I can't remember exactly where, and I was talking about Jack's... Uh, doing this sort of thing, just giving people money when they needed it, uh, well, even if you couldn't afford it. And the character in the uh, in the um, crowd stood up and waved his hand and said, may I speak? And I said, of course. And he was, um, I think he was Egyptian or something like that, who had been sent over to England to uh, in his youth as uh, a student at Oxford uh, studying medicine. And suddenly, the things changed, I and mean, who was in charge of, of Egypt at the time changed, and all of his financing had been stopped. Mm-hmm. And he had been bewailing this to his friends, and one of his friends told Jack about it. And the next morning, the man found a very heavy check slid under his door. <laughs> and he was able to, he was going to have to leave to go back to Egypt and, and give up all of his medical training. In fact, uh, Jack put him through medicine. Oh, wow. And he wanted to say so. He stood up and he was, he was weeping when he finished. So were a lot of people in the audience. But that was, way, that was what Jack did. He didn't know it was Jack at the time. It was years before he could find out who had sent that money and would kept sending it until he was finished and went back to Egypt as a fully trained physician. What was it like for you as a child to move from America to England? That must have been just an enormous change. Well, it was a huge change. I mean, in England, people spoke funny. I mean, they talked with English accents, which I'm afraid I've inherited. Um, and they used strange words with which I wasn't familiar. And the cars all drove on the wrong side of the road. Um, all that sort of thing. It does hit you pretty hard when you're a child, but it doesn't hit you as hard as it might when you're a late teenager. Fortunately, I was only eight years old when I arrived in England, and I just lapped it up. I just loved the place. It had things that I had never seen before, all sorts of things. The food was very different for a start, and quite frankly, rather better than what I was used to in America. But in America, we didn't have enough money to really eat properly anyway, I don't think. But um, I, I started to like England uh, quite quickly, I think, in the piece. Uh, but then, of course, I was sent off to boarding school, which was the done thing in England in those days, and probably still is to some extent. And I was then bullied, and uh, as I said, I stopped the bullies quite suddenly in their tracks by smacking a, smashing a piece of wood across a bloke's face. But, didn't do any good, didn't do me any harm. And uh, I was never bullied again. But, um, yeah, it was. It, some things were difficult. I mean, I didn't understand how a British schoolboy was supposed to behave, and I didn't understand some of the things that were going on. You were indeed, when in, in America, when we started to study um, the history of America, we started off with the landing of the, of the, <laughs> of the pilgrimage coming across from England, yeah. which had been about 200 years before. Well, History in England was starting with Julius Caesar in 55 years B.C. <laughs> and that really struck me as being a little bit over the top. 
But uh, history I did find in, uh, intriguing and, and quite enjoyable. But the educational standards in England were indeed pretty much high, a lot higher than they were in America at that time. I don't think that's still the case. I don't know enough about it to, to comment really, but I don't think it's still the case. But I didn't get the best of education because I was uh, not interested basically in education. I wanted to be a farmer. So I was never a particularly good Right. What were when you first arrived in England? What were your first memories of C.S. Lewis? When did do you remember the first time you met him? Oh yes, absolutely, <laughs> very vividly too, for that matter. Um, our mother had told us about C.S. Lewis and, and how much she admired him and so forth, and he had invited us to go and stay with them. I think it might have been a Christmas uh, thing, or not, might not. I'm not sure. That I can't remember. But I remember walking through the back porch of the kitchen door. In through there, and as I walked in, and mother and my brother and I walked in, Jack appeared from the other side of the kitchen. Um, and he was perhaps the most shabby-looking individual I've ever seen in my life. This was the man who, as far as I was concerned, was on speaking terms with High King Peter and Aslan and all of those wonderful characters who my, my mother had read to me in, in, in books and so on. And he was, in fact, he looked, in, he looked at me completely scruffy. And there was nothing particularly, uh, <laughs> particularly handsome-looking about him. He was balding. He wore clothes that were almost falling apart. He had a pair of slippers on with his heel crushing the heel of the slippers so he just sort of slid into them. And he had long nicotine-stained teeth and fingers, and he was, he was a mess, quite frankly. But the interesting thing that happened there was that although he looked very strange, I mean, I'm looking, for example, like most children would, would think they would be looking at the professor in, in the house when, when um, the kids got to leave London for the blitz and went off to live with his professor. He was that kind of character. Um, but he was also, but there was also a glow about him of friendship and, and, and so forth. And within about five minutes, I think, his, the way he approached me and talked to me and, and the way we had a conversation going just completely eradicated any of the misgivings I might have had about the man. And I, 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 I lost an idol and, and gained a very, very good friend very quickly. So it was very, for me, it was very simple. Uh, this was a man who obviously was fond of my mother, a man who was obviously fond of going to be fond of me. Um, and just he and his brother, Warney, were just wonderful, wonderful people. My brother couldn't see that, of course, because he didn't look that way. How was, but, um, how was he with children? Well, he always claimed to be no good with children, but he was very good with myself and did his very best to be good with my brother, which was almost impossible. As I said, he was he was a, a paranoid, schizophrenic, and dangerous one. And um, so I, I grew to love Jack very quickly as a, as a not quite a father, and, and a stepfather sort of sounds wrong somehow, but as someone who was a, a, a really good teacher in the mildest way um, and helped me learn how to get by in England and, and, and so forth. Uh, he was a wonderful man. I mean, he really was probably the finest man I've ever met. How did C.S. Lewis manage to, to deal with your brother then? He just, he just did his best to be as kind and compassionate as he could? Yes, precisely that. Uh, he helped my brother through all sorts of difficulties in, in education and so forth. And when my brother decided to become Jewish rather than Christian or anything else, he'd already been through Islam and he, he tried Islam and he tried Buddhism. Eventually he wound up with, with uh, Judaism. And uh, Jack went out of his way to get special pots and pans for him so he could cook his own kosher food and, and get kosher food from the, from the, the Jewish uh, shop in, in the middle of the um, covered market in Oxford. All that kind of thing. Jack went out of his way to do everything he possibly could for that lad. And none of it was accepted. I mean, it was accepted, but none of it was actually, um, there was no thanks for it. He was never grateful about it. But then he was actually just very, very badly damaged mentally and emotionally and, and stayed that way. How did you, uh, your mother and, and Jack's relationship develop from a powerful intellectual friendship into what became famously their marriage? Uh, that started really, I think, um, when my mother was told originally, um, during the time, I think it was during the time of the, the NASA regime in Egypt, and the fact that the English were being kicked out of there and so forth, and all that was going on there, it nearly started a war, actually. But um, at that time, the government decided that uh, Americans, some Americans anyway, weren't, weren't welcome in, in England, and uh, she was told that she would have to leave, take us and go back to America. 
which was something that horrified her, quite frankly. And she told Jack about this. And Jack came up with the only solution he could think of, which was that they would go into a secret and private uh, and not Christian marriage. They would have a, a marriage in a, in a one of those sort of offices where you go and just want to get married and you get married. There's no religion attached to it at all, no Christianity or no anything else. And um, so they came out of that secretly being married and still lived apart. She, we lived in Eddington. He lived up, the, up the, about two miles up the road, three miles up the road. But again, the friendship grew at that point. And what really set it off, of course, in, in a very big way, was when my mother was suddenly smitten with cancer. And it was terminal. I was actually at school at the time. And um, we got a letter to tell us that we shouldn't go back to our house in Headington, which we rented, because we were going to be staying in the kilns because our mother was in hospital having broken her leg, which was true. She had broken her leg, but she broke it because a cancer had eaten the bone. And um, I, myself and my brother went to visit her. And some of the most extraordinary things in my life happened at that time. Uh, we went off to, to, the, to the hospital, which was in walking distance with Jack. And he took us into a little anteroom before we went into the into the ward to see you, or into a private room to see my mother. And uh, he said, look, I'm sorry, I have to tell you this, but your mother did break her leg, but that's not why she's here. She's here because she's dying of a terminal cancer. And that was a shock that hit both my brother and myself very, very heavily, probably me more than him. And he had been told to show me the way back to the kilns, the house where we lived, which we were living then, by Jim, but we just moved in with Jack and Warney. And... Um, as soon as we got out on the road, David just ran as fast as he could to get away from me and left me um, just very young, about 10 years old, uh, with absolutely no idea, theoretically, how to get back to the house. So I just sort of started out in what I thought was the right way. And I came to the cinder path that I recognized that led from the road through the churchyard of Holy Trinity Church in Headington Quarry, which is still much the same as it was then. There are movements to, to ruin it, actually, at the moment. But... Um, in any case, I walked down at the end of the pathway there, and I lifted the wrought iron latch of the gate that led into the. It was midsummer. It was led into the to the uh, churchyard, and I stepped out of this world. I stepped into a place where everything was hugely more alive, more alive than I felt, to be honest. The leaves on each tree glowed with an inner light of their own. The grass did the same thing. It was just—it's almost impossible to describe. But I was not in this world because there was a huge, powerful, and greatly emotionally helpful presence in that place. And his presence had caused it all to glow the way it was. And I was only a small boy. And a voice that was not audible through ears, but came into my mind, which said, if you really, really can't live without your mother, I can fix it. All you have to do is ask. And that's one of the most important things I've ever learned in my life. If you need something, and you need something from God, all you have to do is ask. And he will either tell you you can't have it for a particular reason, or he will make it happen. In this case, I prayed that my mother be allowed to live. I went inside the church. This is before they had to lock churches. I went inside the church, and I knelt at the altar. And I prayed with every fiber of my little boy being that my mother be allowed to live, because I really didn't know anybody at that stage except her, and vaguely a bit, a bit of Jack and so forth. And I just really had no one to lean on as far as I was concerned. So I prayed, and he said, okay. It's fixed. Go on home. Be at peace. But he also told me at that time not to tell anybody. I'm not sure why. So I walked on through this amazingly bright and brilliant place, glowing with all its inner lights. Even the trees were aglow. Until I got to the churchyard gate that led out of the churchyard on the far side, and I opened the latch and stepped out into this shabby, shoddy world in which we live. And my mother went into remission two nights later. Wow. Wow. And what was that, that, that period like at this point? When did uh, your mother move in with, with C.S. Lewis? When, she, when, when the hospitals had finally said they could do no more for her, he was not going to let her get back into this rental house. So they put a, a hospital bed in what had been the, the sitting room, the common room as we used to call it, and is again now. And uh, that became her, her place of, of living for the next for a month, month, month anyway. And she slowly recovered. She started to recover that night that I, I, that I prayed. And she just got better and better and better. And she actually lived for four more years. And Jack and, and my mother had the finest times of either of their lives during those four years. And then eventually, of course, the, 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 um, in those days, it was much less treatment than there is today. But 
the cancer started to renew itself. And I was sent home from school where I was at a different school. I was at school in, in Flangranog in, in, um, in Wales, uh, in that area anyway. And, um, I came home, but basically I think I was supposed to go home and say goodbye to my mother because she was dying. And I went to the hospital again, walking back from the hospital through the same churchyard. And he was there again. The same thing happened. The same huge brilliance suddenly erupted in the place. Mind you, I was 14 by this stage. I was not a little boy anymore. And um, I really, I mean, he said, you know, look, if, if you really need it, you need me to do this. This voice, which I'm sure was Jesus himself, said, I can fix it again. If you really need me to do it, let me know. And I thought to myself, and I thought, well, asking for the same miracle twice would probably be a little bit of a greedy thing to do. And really, my mother was going through, had gone through enough agony the first time. So I just turned to God and said, Thy will be done. And I walked out. And she died two days later. There was initially, when they were first married, uh, there was a lot of a lot of opposition to their marriage. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, it depends. If you mean opposition from the church, yes, I do remember it. The problem was quite simple. It was that the, um, the Anglican church, if you had got divorced once, you couldn't remarry. It was their thing. And um, in actual fact, if they had looked more deeply into the subject of my mother, marriage to my father, my, father was, my mother was my father's second wife or third wife anyway. So her marriage to him was invalid as far as the Anglican Church was concerned, and therefore there was no right, they had no right to re- restrain her from marrying Jack. But um, in any case, a very fine young man who was a friend of Jack, that had been a pupil of his, Jack asked him if he would, if he would marry them at, at her bedside, thinking she was dying at that time, which thank God she wasn't, not quite. And so um, Peter Bide was his name, a very, very nice man. And I, I feel gratitude to his shade, even to this day. But he agreed that he would, um, against all the rules, perform this marriage, which he did at their bedside, at mother's bedside in the hospital, uh, with a couple of witnesses, nurses who came and volunteered to witness. And Jack and, and my mother were legally and illegally by the church, even though it was disapproved of, they were married. And the um, Archbishop of Oxford at the time summoned Peter into his, his room and and, uh, and blew, blew the stacks off him in a sense, told him off for doing what he'd done. And after he'd given him this strict lecture about what the church says and what, he's, what he has a right to do and what he doesn't have a right to do, he finally smiled and said, but I'm very glad you did it. <laughs> and they, they lived together and it was, it was, a, it was a, a marriage that lasted for, I think, four years until my mother died. When did when did C.S. Lewis's friends come around to the fact that he'd gotten married? It took a while, and a lot of them didn't want to well, didn't want to actually accept it. Well, they probably thought the same thing as the Anglican Church people had thought that it wasn't possible. Um, I'm not too sure of what their reactions were. I know that some of them didn't like my mother, and they didn't like her for the simple reason that her intellect was hugely more than theirs, <laughs> and Jack had always hidden his. Jack was careful only to release um, his enormous knowledge in half a dozen different languages and half a dozen different nations and histories and so on to people he knew, knew the same things that he did. But for him, he was always holding back. And the only person he didn't have to hold back with was my mother. And of course, she wouldn't hold back from anybody, so she just let, let her in when she thought it was necessary. And that made her unpopular in some areas. But the people who did know her properly and had the sufficient intellect to understand her. Absolutely loved her to bits. When your mother passed away, this must have, I've thought, I've thought often reading the story, reading what you've written about it, reading what other biographers have read, that this must have been something quite extraordinary to him because he, he had never had, had children of his own, although I believe he adopted your brother and yourself. Is that correct? In a sense, yes. I think automatically by marrying our mother, he adopted us. Um, I'm not sure what the rules and regulations were back in England at that time, but that's more or less what happened. And he was—he 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 always claimed he was not good with children, but I, I mean, I've seen him with young children. He was—he was—he was very good with them all the time. Um, but in, in our case, he was as good as he could possibly could be. 
he supported us in everything we could do. I mean, when we did something stupid, when I did something stupid or whatever, I would be told off, um, and I would never, it was never, I never had to be punished, I don't think. But I was, uh, you know, scolded once or twice. And what was it like? What was it like to try and live with him and your brother? Well, I, <laughs> I learned how to fight <laughs> very fast, very quickly, and I learned how to run very fast and very quickly. I came out of the kitchen one afternoon, for example, the kitchen door had opened onto the driveway. And as I walked out of the doorway, it was an arch, a brick arch. As I walked out of it, there was a splash, and I was covered in gasoline. And my brother was standing there trying to strike a match to throw at me. Well, I don't know if you know what a savate is, but a savate is a particular kind of kick that I picked up somewhere, and I kicked his wrist so hard I nearly broke it, but not quite. And the, uh, the matches and so forth went flying, and uh, I took off. But that's, that sort of thing was not uncommon. Um, it was it was a difficult childhood for me and Jack and Warney. Jack tried his very hardest for, for David all the time. He tried to, to help him in every way he could, and he was kind and gentle and wonderful with him. Warney, on the other hand, couldn't stand him; just stayed out of his way, loathed him, loathed the sight of him. What are some of the things that stand out to you about about that upbringing? Were you aware at the time uh, that that you were living with somebody who was going to become one of the Christian icons of the 20th century? Was that something you were aware of then, or did that come later? That mostly came later, but what I was aware of was that he was famous. And we had people from all over the world to come to visit him, especially people with problems. Um, many, many years ago now, um, a man who was a member of the royal family of England, a very important one, showed up. Uh, driving his own car, which was an enormous, beautiful, beautiful machine that I greatly envied, and had one. I actually managed to get one much later in life and loved it. But in any case, um, he came in and he spent time with Jack, and I think he went away feeling a great deal better. Uh, some pro- I don't know what his problem was. I know who I don't mention his name, but I know who he was. And um, I don't know if Jack solved his problem at all, but he certainly helped the man understand it and, and work towards it or something. Um, he was a very fine man. I, 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 he came a couple of times, actually. I, I, I liked him very much because I was the guy in those days. If Warney was not there, and Warney was an alcoholic, and he eventually went off in, on binges. But um, if I was in the house, I would be the, people to, the person to show people up to his rooms in our home at the kiln. And uh, so I got to know quite a few of them. There was a huge, <laughs> huge Dutch character came in one day. He must have been nearly seven feet tall. And there was a big wardrobe, not, it's the wardrobe that's in the Wade collection now actually, but it's not actually the, the wardrobe that inspired the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. But in any case, this character walked in, he was wearing a lovely black um, bowler hat. And uh, just before I could take him up the stairs to see Jack, uh, he took his hat off and put it on top of the wardrobe. The problem was the wardrobe hadn't been dusted in probably 100 years or 50 years anyway. <laughs> So as soon as he was upstairs, I got a little stepladder out and came down and cleaned everything, brushed off the hat, which was covered in the stuff, brushed off the top of the wardrobe with the vacuum cleaner and got out of the way. But, I mean, all the time we had people arriving at the door wanting to talk to Jack. Some were very good, nice people and good fun to be with, and some were, were difficult. But Jack never turned anybody away. And if he found someone who was in dire straits financially, no matter whether he was broke himself or not, he would find some money to help. He was just like that. What sort of conversations would you have with C.S. Lewis? <laughs> All kinds of conversations. We would have stupid, fun um, schoolboy conversations where he would deliberately revert to his schoolboys. So would Warney. Um, this was, but this was not when my brother was in the house. We couldn't do that kind of thing when David was around. Um, but we, we had a lot of fun as well. And, and one, I remember one time Jack took a great risk. They'd given me for my birthday, which is in November, cold months of the year in England. Um, a kayak, a small, um, it had wooden straps and, straps and then it had canvas overs, you know, to, to paddle around on the, on the lake with. And I was, you know, really spent most of my time out there for a long time. And Jack and my mother came to walking up to the side of the lake. And the lake was not, it hadn't frozen yet, but it was very cold. And I was paddling around and Jack summoned me and, and said, and I came over to where he was in the, in the kayak and he said, um, I was just wondering if you could do me the honor of paddling me across the lake. And I said, I'd be pleased to, I'd be thrilled to. So he carefully sat down in the front seat of this thing. And I took off and I showed him right around the lake, all the little things I knew that nobody else did that you could see from the from inside the lake rather than from outside of it. 
and finally uh, took him off to where my mother had by this time walked around the lake. She could still walk in those days. And she was waiting for him on one of the promontories that stuck out of the lake. And I took him over there, and he stood up and stepped out and thanked me very gently and kindly for giving him a great ride around the lake. And off they went. And I didn't realize that this man, at that time, I realized it later, that this man had risked being dumped in freezing water simply to give a little boy a sense of responsibility and admiration from him. And I've sort of cherished that gesture ever since. When... The like the initial days, I was I was interested in this both uh, both in in the book and, and doing some research on this. Those initial days after your mother was gone and 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 you were just you were just living with D.S. Lewis. What were those initial days like? That must have been incredibly difficult for for a boy. You hadn't you hadn't initially grown up in England. What was that period like? Well, at, at that time, I had spent time in English public English boarding schools. Don't forget, so I was pretty much an English schoolboy by that stage. But what I did understand, or began to understand, was that I wasn't the only one who was crying. When I came back from Lapley Grange, which is in, uh, in, in Wales, school I was at in Wales, a wonderful school at the time, by the way. When I came back from that after a year there, um, I knew I had been told my mother had died and I was going to, to uh, attend the funeral. And the the uh, boss of the, of the school, the headmaster who owned the school, had uh, for the second time, actually first time his wife who took me home, but he had got his uh, gardener come chauffeur out and they had driven me all the way from West Wales into, into Oxfordshire and to see Jack and they just dropped me at the door and said, no, we won't come in, thanks very much, Ross, because I often have a cup of tea and something, no thank you, but uh, we have to get back to the school, as you know, but um, we wish you all the best, you know, and they drove off. And I walked into the house through the front door, and on the left, the first door you come to is what's known as the, the um, oh, I've forgotten the name of it now, it just escapes me. But anyway, it was the room I was referring to earlier. And when I walked, I opened the door, and it was just a shock, because Jack, whom I'd seen a week or two earlier, had shriveled up to a small, white-haired, white-faced, desperate man. And he was standing with his left hand on, on the mantelpiece. And I just looked at him and I burst into floods of tears and said, oh, Jack. And he came rushing across and he held me in his arms. And we stood and wept with each other for about, I suppose, five minutes, perhaps, or ten minutes even. And then finally I said, um, Jack, what are we going to do? What can we do now? Jack said, well, I suppose we just have to carry on, Doug. And that's what we set out to do, just carry on being us and doing the best we could with what was left it wasn't a good time for either of us. It was a very bad time. And Warney, of course, who actually, what people don't know is that Warney, Jack's elder brother, um, Warren was his real name, was a soldier by trade. And he had fought in both the First and Second World Wars. Very brave man. But he became an alcoholic. And so Warney was sort of deserted Jack whenever he was feeling absolutely had it. But you see, Warney had loved my mother as much as Jack did, but in a very, very different way. They were, they were great friends, and mother helped him with some of his writing, and he helped her with some of hers, and so forth. The atmosphere in that house was one of great love and great joy and great fun all the time I was there until my mother died. And the only sort of fly in the ointment, of course, was my brother David. Nobody knew uh, what your brother struggled with for years afterwards. Is that correct? Um, it is correct. We didn't tell anybody. Uh, the only reason I'm releasing it now is because I think people should know what Jack put put up with and what Warney put up with and how heroic they were to do it at all. But um, you know, David David was actually diagnosed. Our uncle, uh, my mother's brother, our uncle Howard in New York, had allowed him to come and stay with him for a while. Um, he didn't have any idea what sort of condition David was born with, but he was a very talented and well-renowned psychotherapist and psychiatrist in New York. So when my brother went to stay with him, um, I know that they had difficulties. He never told me what the difficulties were with him, but eventually David left. And years later, myself 
and my wife and our children, some of our children, went to, to visit them just to say hello. And he took me aside into his own office. And he said, Douglas, I think you should know that I did diagnose your brother as being a dangerous paranoid schizophrenic. And I said, you don't have to tell me he was dangerous, but paranoid schizophrenic I hadn't heard before. And he refused all treatment. Uh, Uncle Howard had, had offered him free treatment, and he just refused to be treated at all. So uh, Uncle Howard didn't invite him back. Right. When, when your mother passed away, you lived with you lived with C.S. Lewis for three years before he passed away. Uh, yes. Um, well, actually, it was it, it was a bit more difficult than you think. Okay. Because my mother died. And then about a year later, 18 months later, it was my father committed suicide in America. Having already visited us after my mother's death, he came over and visited us all. It had been pre-planned. It wasn't deliberately planned because she died. It was, it was going to happen anyway. And then when he heard that mother had died, he wrote to Jack and said, well, I suppose I ought to really, you know, not come over. And Jack said, no, 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 the boys would love to see you. Please do come over. And he came and he stayed with us at the kilns for a while, and he and I went off traveling around. David wasn't interested. And I still loved my father. I mean, you don't just stop loving somebody automatically. Mm-hmm. And um, then he went back to went back to America, and a short while later, he was diagnosed with um, cancer of the, throat, of the throat and tongue, and he wasn't expected to live a very long time. And he had had friends, two friends, who had died of the same thing, two returned soldiers like himself. And uh, he had seen what horrors they'd been through, and he didn't want to inflict them on Rene and his uh, two stepchildren. By the way, one of which is, is very close to me and has been for many years. Um, but uh, and she's a lovely person. But anyway, um, Dad was committed to suicide about eighteen months after my mother died, and then of course about another eighteen months later, Jack died. So that was a pretty difficult few years for me. When did you find out that that C.S. Lewis was dying? Uh, I didn't find out that he was dying. Nobody told me, which is a wrong thing. You should not keep that a secret. If you know that someone that, that your children love is going to die, you should tell them gently and carefully and hopefully um, this is going to happen and we just have to you know, put up with it and, and pray that the person goes to be with Jesus and that they will be a lot happier than they were on this earth. But, you know, the problem is people just don't want to tell anybody. But they don't want to, even a lot of people don't want to leave, let the children know, for example, that their mother or father is dying. It's, it's not the right way to approach it. But anyway, I, was, um, I went to visit Jack in the hospital. And as I walked out of the hospital after that visit, um, a tall man whom I recognized as J.R.R. Tolkien was coming down, the, coming down the road, and he stopped me in the street and said, Douglas, you won't remember me. And I said, of course I remember you. He said, well, um, I just want to let you know that if anything untoward should happen to Jack and you have nowhere to go, you can come and live with us. Oh, wow. And I think that was such a noble thing. A noble offer. But anyway, it didn't happen to, but I didn't have, I, I pointed out, I told him that, that I was already, um, it had been promised that my mother's best friend in England, uh, Jean Wakeman, who was a motoring journalist, had already said that, that I would come and stay with them. She and her, uh, her older friends, who she lived at her house with, and people who'd been her employer, now she was supporting them. And uh, so I went to live for about two or three years, I think, in the old vicarage in Horton Come Studley. And I have never been in a colder house in my life. It was freezing in the winters. But anyhow, um, yes, that, that's, that's what happened there. I went to live in, in the lovely village, Horton Comes Studley, still is. But I wasn't there for very long before I, uh, I met a young lady, and everything changed. What was it like having a very private grief for the passing of a very public figure? That's a very interesting question. You know, I've never considered it. It was a very private grief, um, but I went through private grief with so many people, and it's always the same. It hurts, basically. Is what you, the best way you describe it is it hurts, and it hurts in many different fields of, of emotion, and sometimes you feel that you've been neglected, you've been tossed aside, and of course that's not the case at all. That's the enemy of God trying to make us feel that it's God's fault, and it isn't. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I've never really thought too much about about what it means to have everybody die off on you, except that it hurts like hell. Um, yeah, I, I, there's very little I can tell you about that. I don't really remember thinking 
that this is three people who've died in a row and therefore I've, I'm special or something. But like that, it just I just dealt with what happened at the time and got on with it, which is what I think Jack Wallace would have had me do. When you uh, you said that, that Tolkien said uh, you won't remember me, and you say that you did, had you met him before or several times before? Yes, several times actually. I had been at Inklings meetings when I was quite small. Uh, for like? some reason, there was no one at home to look after me, and Jack was going off to a midday English Inklings meeting at a pub somewhere. Right. He would take me along with him, and I would be given half a pint of draft bitter beer. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably only about twelve at the time, almost that, which I enjoyed, and I'd go off and play know, games in the in the backyard of the pub or whatever and then uh, when, when the meeting was all over and, and uh, they were all bidding each other farewell I would come out and we'd, we'd go home so I knew I knew Tullus I, I knew him vaguely but the, by the time Jack died of course I was getting on a bit in, in, in age and I was uh, yeah I was about to go to agricultural college actually and um, so I, I hadn't seen him for a long time but yes I knew him and I, I, I well I do regret it I never knew his, his son who, who, who I think is uh, 90-something years old now. Christopher passed away last fall, I believe. Yes, I think Christopher did die, and I was sad to hear it because I knew I, I had met him once or twice and liked him. I would always wish now that I had the sense to go and, and uh, make friends with him again. But I was so, so busy with other things, I just never got the chance. What do you remember of the development of the Narnia series? Because I know the horse and his boy is dedicated to you and your brother. Yes. Well... I don't, <laughs> that's a very difficult question to answer because there's very little I can tell you that everybody doesn't know. Um, they came in the, in, the, in the series numbers, as you know, mm-hmm. and um, I, I loved every one as they came, every single one of those books as they were deli- delivered, and I, I just loved each book completely. But I knew that Jack was always in his office writing, and sometimes he was writing on Narnia, and sometimes he was writing other things. But it was it was not something I took a special interest in at the time. I was just waiting for the next book. I was sort of hoping he'd get on with it. You know? Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things I, I've been interested on as well. Is, so once once your your mother had passed away and C.S. Lewis had passed away, your life is incredibly fascinating. One of the things that's fascinating, besides all of the different things that you've done and the uh, and the career that you've been able to pursue, is the number of different places. Uh, you've lived. One of the things I had wanted to ask you was uh, why Australia and then wh- why Malta? Because uh, you went from, if I, I probably have this wrong, but from England to Ireland, from Ireland to Tasmania, and from Tasmania not to quite. Malta? Not, not quite. You got it backwards. Okay. We actually, what, I'll have to tell you the whole story. It's the easiest way of getting through this. <laughs> okay. I was sent, when I was about to go to Agricultural College, the Agricultural College. Uh, insisted that you have at least 18 months practical work on farms before you could join the college. So I was sent off by um, some friends of, of Jean Wakeman, who was by that time, I was living with her in, 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 uh, in the house she had in Horton Come Studley. And this was after, after Jack had died. And so I was sent down, or went, I was taken down by Jean actually, to see these people. And Sir Edward and Lady Mallet, who had a large farm in Somerset, who always needed the, you know, an odd person or another young lad to try and train up a bit and uh, help them on the farm. And they had their own son, but they all needed a bit more help. So I went down there and eventually went to stay with them and, and to help on that farm. And at one stage, Lady Mallet came into, into the uh, breakfast dining room one morning, waving a piece of paper. And she said, oh, Doug, you'll love this. Mary's coming to stay. And I said, well, who's Mary? And she said, well, she's our niece. She comes from Tasmania. And Harry piped up, that's the son, and he said... Um, Oh yes, you'll you'll love you'll love Mary. Any any? And I said, well, how old is she? And she said, well, she's I think she was twenty at the time, or twenty-one perhaps at the time, and I was only eighteen. So I said, oh, she's much too old for me. And Harry said, no, any anybody with trousers on is good enough for Mary. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, just jokingly, of course. So we were sent. Uh, Harry and I both needed haircuts, and we were sent into Taunton, which is the large town in in uh, Somerset, uh, to uh, to get our haircuts and to pick up this girl and her friend who were coming to stay in the house for a week with her aunt and uncle and cousin Harry. So we went down to, you know, get our haircut. We did, and we went off to the station. And we waited and waited and waited. That's just sort of uh, the usual thing, or was the usual thing in those days in, in uh, England. The train was late, and it was bitterly cold. Anyhow, um, the train eventually roared in, and it was a steam train in those days, and slammed to a stop, and people started to climb down. Hundreds of people came down, because um, places, Taunton is a pretty big town. Anyhow, and I had, when I was 
being beaten by David up in, when I was like a child, I had realized I had to stay away from him in, in upstate New York, and I would just run away and play by myself. And it was eventually, it got to the stage where you were very lonely. So I invented in my mind a little girl who I would like to play with. You know, to run around with little baby cars and stuff and all the usual things that kids do. And as I grew older, this child in my mind, who was my partner in, in, in fun, just, you know, just someone who I'd play with, grew older as well. And it never stopped. And, uh, when I had got to, um, Chargat, which was the, the, uh, the name of the farm, I had this sort of girl about my age, about 18 years old, who I wanted to meet and, and I probably would eventually marry. And I knew exactly what she was going to look like and I knew exactly what she'd sound like and exactly how she'd behave because I invented her. And then we went, we're standing on the platform in Taunton and the train stopped and all these people got out, several hundred of them, I think. And this crowd was sort of milling around and I saw the girl I'd been looking for since I was six years old. And I said to Harry, Harry, did you see that girl over there? He said, which one? There's dozens of them. And I said, the one with the long blonde pigtail. He said, oh, yes, what about her? I said, she's the girl I'm going to marry. And he said, oh, don't be so stupid. That's my cousin. <laughs> and um, I think within two or three days, I had been fallen, well, within sight almost, I'd fallen completely in love with this girl. And I decided I was going to marry her. And that took me three years and three proposals, <laughs> none of which she ever answered till the last one. And the last one, she said yes. And we've been married now, I think, for... We've been together for 57 years, married for more than 50 of them. <laughs> and then, so that's... So you, when you went to Australia, you went to where she was She was, she was. was from originally. Yeah, Tasmania was her home, you see. And so right. we, we thought, well, the only way I'll be able to get a farm, because I didn't have any money to speak of, I couldn't get a farm in England. It was too expensive. The only way I'd be able to get a farm would be to um, go off to Australia somewhere where land was cheap in those days and start from scratch. So we toddled off to Australia, to Tasmania, where she had grown up. And I had to buy a car out there and so forth and get around. And we actually bought a small farm. And we ran that farm. And we had three, three babies while we were there. And uh, one of them is now farming himself in northern New South Wales. Um, the, the next one down is actually a medical distributor. He distributes medical high-tech machinery for, um, you know, looking into people when they're asleep and stuff like that, uh, way above my head. And the third one is an architect who, who lives in Brisbane, and they've all got families of their own, which is one of the reasons we go out to Australia every year and one of the reasons why I got stuck there and marooned for nearly <laughs> six months when the, uh, all the airlines stopped flying. But uh, that was how I met Mary, and uh, in fact, she's, she's in the house here somewhere right now. And then, what, you was it Ireland next, or Malta Oh, next? yes, well, well the thing, both of us gave our lives over to Christ. Um, we had never, we, I'd, I'd always been a Christian in belief, mm -hmm. but never much in behavior. And Mary and, and, I, and I both decided that we would become Christians. So we did. And um, we were running this by the time that, I'd been in the, in the, in the radio and television working for years at that stage. We left Tasmania because I'd been in a radio station there and done very well, bought a car and a caravan and sold the farm and took off across Australia. And um, finally, I got a job with a radio station there. And it was a tiny little radio station down the deep south of Western Australia. And I was the... I was <laughs> the well, I guess I was the only member of, of the staff there that wasn't married to the manager. It was that small a radio station. <laughs> but eventually the boss from, from the main parent station in Perth, which is the capital of Western Australia, came down to say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry to the boss, My, uh, Michael. He said, um, I'm going to steal your new man away from you because we've heard him reading news on, on, up the line to us from, from this little place. And we want him as our newsreader. So I wound up was about four times as much salary, working in Perth, living in the caravan, and um, raising babies at the same time. And eventually, we rented houses and so forth. And I moved up the ladder slowly. But in the end, I was a grade two and should have been grade three broadcaster. And um, I just got sicker and sicker of what was happening there. And uh, I was with the commercial radio station first, and that was good. But I got twice as much money when I went for the government station, the ABC. 
And in the end, I left uh, with a lot of money in my pocket, and we went back to Tasmania, and we bought a big farm. And little by little, we gained a lot more money, and I bought a bigger farm, and so on. So we had a lot of farms, and, and my son James, who grew up on the farm with us, and my other two sons as well, they all learned a lot about farming and about how to handle themselves, and how to handle animals, and how to handle various other situations. And James went off to America and became an airline captain with Delta, and eventually got thoroughly bored with it, and rang me up one day and said, look, I want to be, you know, I want to get out of this, and I want to go dairy farm. I want to go farming, he did say dairy farm, I want to go beef farming. So he and I eventually, um, he bought a farm, and I bought the one next door, which came on the market. So we now have uh, 6,000 acres of, of beef and cattle country and, uh, and forest. When, uh, so your career is, is quite well known at this point, especially because, you know, you've written a couple of Sorry, th- what's, what's quite well known? Uh, your career. You've, had a, you've written a couple of books. You've been a voice actor. Well, if you can call it, you can't really call it a career, I don't think. It's just the way I happen to have lived. Yes, and an eclectic collection of, of different callings um, is maybe a better you way bet. to put it. <laughs> um, what was the trajectory of, of your of your brother's life like? Because I'm realizing talking to you, um, is is it well known uh, what he went through? I don't think anybody knows anything about David except me right. and his wife, of course. Uh, he he had a wife and uh, yes, and she's still alive, and they have two lovely kids, two lovely boys. Uh, who are all in sort of you know their twenties and thirties? Yeah, you must be getting thirty now. So. Right. But they 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 all they all went through a, a pretty difficult time being family with with David. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not sort of anything you would wish on anybody, even if you hated them. And I don't hate these people at all. I like them. They're very nice. Because I, I don't. But they went through difficulties. I don't believe his problems even showed up in becoming Mrs. Lewis. I don't think they did, and I think at the time I'm very glad that they didn't. Um, I would not have hurt my brother any more than I could possibly help when I was fighting him off, that is. Right. In any way, if I could avoid it. Uh, so I haven't even spoken about him, really, until he was dead. And I think that uh, it's, it's time people really understood what Jack and Warney went through rather than what I went through. That doesn't matter. I, mm-hmm. I can handle it. But Jack and Warney didn't know what the heck to do. Jack did his very best. And Warney just stayed away from him. When you look back... Now, at, at growing up, what stands out to you? I find doing interviews with a, a lot of a lot of, uh, especially people who have who have experienced something that, in retrospect, is is historical. They have certain memories that stand up. It's often not the ones you'd think it was. But what are the memories that really stand out for you? <laughs> um, well, I think probably the the, the the memory that stands out most powerfully in my mind, the good one, I'm not going to go about the bad ones, but the good one that stands out most amazingly powerfully in my mind is when for the third time I asked Mary if she'd marry me and she said yes. <laughs> and I nearly passed out, to be honest, because I didn't expect it. I mean, she said no three times already. I thought it was going to go on for ages. But <laughs> right. Um, so I was, I was quite gobsmacked, as we say in England, by the whole situation. And of course, then we had to set up a, <laughs> had to set up a marriage, a wedding. And I had to go, she was a Catholic at the time, and I had to go and uh, learn from the Roman Catholic priest who was teaching me about Roman Catholicism. And at the end of the, uh, the courses he put me through, I said, well, I have, have I learned enough, you know, for you to let me marry this Catholic young lady? He said, I don't know what you've learned, but I've learned an awful lot about you. <laughs> so I thought he was obviously a pretty good dude. And uh, he was the man who married us. But yes, it, it's... Looking back, I, I, look, I've had a weird life altogether, I suppose. But it's also been an enormously enjoyable one. I mean, there have been great sadnesses, there have been great difficulties. Um, but really, I think it's probably honest to say I've, lo- I've loved nearly every minute of it, but not some of the difficult ones. When you look at today, 2020, uh, we live in what can be uh, accurately described as a fairly insane time. This may be a pointless exercise, but do you ever wonder what C.S. Lewis or your mother would write about what's going on at the moment? I don't think they would. I don't think they would have written about it at all. I think they would have been so disgusted they would have left it alone, personally. But I don't, I, that's only my own theory. I, I don't know what they would have written. I don't know whether they would have wanted to even be alive in this circumstances that we have in today's world. Um, but also, I think this is a cyclic thing. It's not something that, that happens once and then goes away. It happens once every, uh, probably every hundred years. You get this kind of resurgence of all kinds of idiocy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's liable to happen again in another hundred years from now. Right. I don't think this is new. Which part? 
Well, all of it. Everything from having a new disease that nobody knows how to handle uh, to having situations where where people are fighting each other for absolutely no reasons at all. Right. Um, all that sort of thing, the, the violence and, and stuff that goes on in various countries of the world. Fabulous, fabulous statues are being dumped in the rivers and so forth. It's all complete nonsense. And, and it, it will happen again. It'll all quiet down, and for the next century or so, we will be uh, people living here will will have good, quiet lives, and then it'll all rumble up again the way it does and start again. Mm-hmm. If you look back far enough, you'll find this sort of thing happened in the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire before that, the French Empire, and so on. Um, it's it's going to go on cycling for a long, long time, I think, until finally God will say, right, that's it. You know, everybody out of the pool and yanks the plug. One of the things I've, I've wanted to ask you since I read a biography of your mother as a teenager is, what do you wish everybody knew about her that they don't? <laughs> I think what people miss mostly is the fact that she was an extremely loving mother and did everything she possibly could to make our lives happy and to earn money to feed us uh, until Jack came along, of course, and, and helped with that. She was an amazingly lovely person to be with. She had a huge sense of humor. She was very kind, very gentle. Um, toward the end of her life, of course, she was in extreme agonizing pain most of the time, which changed her a bit. But, um, no, I, I think people misunderstand my mother completely. I lived with her until she died, remember. And you don't get a man like C.S. Lewis marrying someone like that if they're not a very, very special person. Right. Right. And how old was your, how old was your brother when he passed away? Did he pass away recently? Yeah, he, about three or four years ago, but five years ago, I think it was Christmas. Christmas Day, he died. In a, he was in a um, a locked environment in a Swiss mental hospital, mm. and uh, a secure one. And um, he just he just died one night. I don't know what of completely, but then I wasn't in Switzerland at the time. I was probably a long way away. Right. And I heard that he had died. And I, to be honest, I cried when he died. Uh, although he was almost out to kill me most of my life. Right. He was still my brother. When people ask you what they should read to understand C.S. Lewis and your mother, I, this is one of my, my my final questions: is what would you what would you point them towards? The there's that new book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, which you've given your endorsement to. What and there's your your memoir, of course, Lenten Lands. What what books would you which advise? Which is the best of all of them? Yes, <laughs> very <laughs> certainly certainly from your perspective, it's an it's a very enjoyable book. Um, oh, thank you. And what's what's the what other books would you recommend? Would you just say to read their writings themselves, or is there a particular biography that really stands out that you would recommend to people? I think the best biography of Jack ever written was the one by George Sayer. Uh, George didn't pull any punches, and yet he didn't over-belabor things either, and he didn't come up with things that weren't true. Most of the biographers I, biographies of Jack that I've, re- I've read have been based in um, surmise, surmise rather than fact. At times, not not right through, but but at times. In fact, I had one of them stopped many years ago uh, because the writer had made a, a completely lying statement about me. And I went into the head of the of the, of the publishing house. I said, "Look, if you don't take that 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 book off the market, I'm going to sue you for millions." Uh, he he was a very nice man. I'd known him for some time, and he promptly had all those books burned, and they brought out another edition which didn't have it. It didn't have that badness in it. Um, that kind of thing. I, but but most of the most of the biographers who write about Jack go back and dig in into other people's views of him. You cannot ever learn about the best and the worst in a man by asking other people. You have to find out what the real truth is. And that means enormous amounts of digging into the past. Very difficult to do. If you have someone like me who grew up with him, I could tell you a great deal more than any of the biographers. Right. Would you say that until so you haven't revealed before that that your brother was the way he was? Would you say that a lot of people got things wrong simply because they didn't know that? It's hard to for them to describe that period of of, of your of your mother and Jack living together in your early life without knowing that information, which they just didn't know. Well, I think one of the things about that is that nobody seems to know that David was ever there. He seemed to have just fade out of out of existence, and, and there's not this none of the biographers that I've. Uh, Encounter the biographies about Jack, for example, hardly mention my brother or me, for that matter, much. Right. I don't mind that in the least. But um, 
I, I just I just think it's a symbol, it's a, it's a signal that they, they haven't really dug deep enough. Yeah, because once you... And then, of course, if you dig too deep, you get people who, who hate the person you're writing about and come up with all sorts of stuff, most of which can be true or untrue, uh, and the whole thing gets slanted in another direction. Right. It happens again and again with biographers. Well, Mr. Gresham, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Douglas Gresham, the stepson of C.S. Lewis. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It's fascinating for me to hear somebody talk about a man I've been reading for years um, as a friend, as somebody he knew well, knew intimately. And so I hope you enjoyed that. You can uh, subscribe to this podcast. Go over to LifeSightNews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can check out past shows. Again, thank you so much for joining us this week. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Bye for now.